Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming tonight's guest, Steve Winter. Thanks, everybody. Let me see if we can get this rolling here. Thanks to uh, Apple, and of course, thank you to National Geographic. Okay, so I want to say happy birthday to National Geographic Magazine, which is 125 years old this month. And uh, I believe that photography can change the world. I've believed this since I was a little kid, because since I was eight years old lying on the living room floor of my house south of Fort Wayne, Indiana, that I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer since I was eight years old. And that's why, because I believed that photography could change the world, looking at Life Magazine, National Geographic, my dad was an amateur photographer. So one thing we're going to do tonight is I, you're, I, I'm going to show you my history at National Geographic. They said show the best of, so you're going to get it. Uh, this is one of my last photographs published in the magazine. It was the opener for the January 2013 story on Yasuni, trying to save the rainforest in Ecuador. But when I first started out, I was a photojournalist. I worked for Time, Newsweek, Businessweek, Fortune, things like that. I got a job to go down to Central America, and during that shoot, which was people-oriented, they said, hey, you want to go see a turtle, Arribada? And I said, what's that? And a place where turtles come on the beach all at once. And I figured if I was going to start taking pictures of animals, it'd be really good to do a turtle because they don't move very fast. And I also wasn't really sure how to do it, but I just thought, well, it's an object like we are. I'll photograph it like I would do a person. And I started doing natural history photography for National Geographic. My first story was on the Quetzal. It's the sacred bird of the Maya and the Aztecs. I had never photographed a bird before in my life, but I'd been shooting at the magazine and the director of photography at the time, Tom Kennedy, believed in me and gave me my first shoot. One thing I learned then, I, you, you, you look through uh, other stories and go, hey, maybe I can do an inside the nest picture. But I'd never done it before. And my mentor, Nick Nichols, who's uh, editor at large at National Geographic now, he said, never tell the editor something that you can't succeed at or that'll be the last story you ever do. But obviously I was successful, so that was great. But that first story changed my life. And it changed my life on a night like tonight. I was laying in bed all alone on top of a mountain in the cloud forest of Guatemala. I was ignorant of biology and natural history. And laying there at night reading my book, the stairs started creaking. And then the boards in front of my door started creaking. And then I heard this scratching sound under the door and then <laughs> and every hair on my body stood straight up. I grabbed the radio and called down the mountain to Juan Carlos, who is my uh, naturalist, and he goes, in Spanish, don't worry, Steve, it's no problem, it's just a black panther. 
And if anybody told me that my next story would be the first Jaguar story ever done by National Geographic, I would say, how would you know? I don't know anything about Jaguars. But it was. It had never been done before. I told my wife this, and she said, don't you think there's probably a good reason why it hasn't been done before? But it all started out by seeing this image uh, in, in the press and then cold calling Dr. Alan Rabinowitz, who I now work with uh, at Panthera, where I'm director of media. It's the world's largest big cat organization. And I saw this picture, called him up and said, do you think it'd be possible to do a story on Jaguars? And that was the first time I started using remote cameras. Well, I'll explain it a little bit more later. Because with elusive animals, you could wait in a blind or a hide, as they say in Europe. I just flew in from London last night doing lectures over at the Museum of Natural History over there. And they call them hides. But you will never see a jaguar, ever. They smell you, they're smarter than we are, and they follow you in the jungle when you're tracking them. But I learned how to do natural history stories. What are the problems uh, faced by... Uh, predators that live with people, predators that like eating cows, and cowboys that don't like them eating cows, and will shoot them on sight. Learning these things helped me to tell their stories and get a background in this kind of photography. This is a picture of Alan Rabinowitz on top of an elephant in far northern Burma. Alan and I ended up doing a story together on a place called the Hukong Valley, or as the local name was, the Valley of Death. <laughs> now, when he said this to me, I went, yeah, that sounds like a place I want to do a story on. But I ended up working in jungles and working with scientists. I can't do what I do without the help of local people, park guards, and the knowledge of scientists. But I put scientists and local people in the same category. The local people grew up there, they know it, but I need to work with these guys and I need to cover them in stories. So I went to do a story on a park and how it was being created to be the world's largest tiger reserve. But as soon as I landed, I got on the Burma Road. I was the first Westerner to get to the end of the Burma Road since 1945. I found that the story had dramatically changed. I went into the jungle to meet 35 guys that were the Burmese tiger team and worked with them, set up my remote cameras, and then cover the rest of the story and show the area. When we do a story, we need to have the landscape, what the area looks like, the animals that live there, the predators, the birds, things like that. But in this instance, the people became the story. In any protected area that you work in, local people gain a part of their income by bringing things out of the forest. And in this instance, this guy was just going in to cut palm fronds for the top of his house and he'd sell some to his neighbors. But 100,000 people came in by the time the story was approved and I landed. And because the country's so secretive, I didn't know about it. So luckily, I was a photojournalist before because the story changed and I had to fall back on, back on my photojournalistic skills and now photograph the people and the gold mining that was going on. 
There's another thing that I learned a lot when I got there, being a photojournalist that didn't cover the natural world, I didn't know much about the traditional Asian medicinal market. Um, I met these guys when I was in the jungle, they were floating down the river on a homemade raft, and I said, can you ask them how, why they killed a bear and how much the paws are worth? They tried to kill it for its gallbladder, and they sold the whole thing for $8. So the caption in the National Geographic read the $8 bear. Met local people that revered the wildlife. Here's a man I just saw walking by his house and looked in. He's getting ready to go hunting, and he was praying to the skulls of the previously hunted animals to have a successful hunt and giving them respect. Here's some of the skulls. One of the things that I learned also was that if you had 100,000 miners, unless they brought a grocery store with them, where are they going to get the food they need to eat? They're going to get it out of the forest, and they're going to eat the same food as the tigers. The number one way to protect tigers is to protect their prey. I met this Naga shaman and wanted to ask him through the interpreter, when was the last time he ever saw a tiger? And he pointed to the hat on his head and the teeth around his neck and said about 20 years ago. So I'm learning. I went to a local table. On the right is tiger bone. It's made in single individual packages. On the left is elephant skin. This is used for traditional medicine. This is the table it was sitting on. Photographically, I had to figure out how to, to photograph a table sitting on the street because it's a difficult thing to do. The picture before has never been seen before. Um, I showed it in London the other night because I want people to know what does tiger bone look like and does it have any value? Because the question we need to keep asking ourselves, are tigers worth more dead than alive? I believe they're worth more alive. But I got to fall back on my photojournalistic roots by asking if I could do a story on the Irrawaddy River in, in Burma or Myanmar. I'd been doing animal stories for a few years and I wanted to do a story. We used to do exploration stories on rivers. This is f uh, uh, a photograph from a hot air balloon of Bagan. When Marco Polo came into Bagan on his, one of his travels, he called it the Golden City because it had 5,000 golden top pagodas. This is the first digital picture I ever took. And the first day I shot a digital camera and it was the opener of the story. So I was very lucky. Cover the people, how they live their lives. The, the uh, fishing they do down at the mouth of the Irrawaddy. And an upside down catfish that somebody said I should check out because Queen Victoria had them bring them back for her back when she was Queen of England. And cover animistic festivals, people that still respect and revere the natural world. And, you know, throughout the years, uh, I've worked with Alan a lot, and so, he, like I said, he offered me a job uh, at Panthera, and I said, only if I can still be a photographer at National Geographic. So I, I did a quick story for Panthera because it revolves around creating the Jaguar Corridor, which is a corridor that runs from the U.S.-Mexico border down to um, northern Argentina. 
So I went down to cover an animal that I almost failed at many years ago. Only got two images of a jaguar that was published in the magazine. And now I went down and you can actually see these animals. The same area I ended up shooting is now being protected. So I went down to cover the natural history and look at scientists in the field when they go to local people and to be able to find out whether they've seen jaguars or not, they show them pictures of the pug barks. And then if they say, I've seen this one, but not this one, they know, then they know it's a puma and not a jaguar. Cover the cowboys, because the whole idea was to go down and look at two ranches that are between two protected areas, which a vital corridor for the jaguar corridor, so the animals can move from one to the other without being killed by cowboys. And find out, you know, an interesting way to photograph a cowboy through a cow's horn. And another important thing that we do as, as predator photographers is how do predators move in a corridor type environment through the barriers that we as humans put in their way. So I put one of those remote cameras on this cattle fence and the reason I did it is because I saw tracks of a female and her little cub going underneath the fence and got lucky enough to get the picture. And one of the, the number one zoologists in the world, Dr. George Schaller, asked me if he thought it would be possible to get a photograph illustrating how jaguars kill cattle. So I was lucky enough to get that. And then some jaguars. I call this one Super Jaguar and got him, lucky at 10 frames per second, jumping in the water because he was hunting caiman, which are uh, black caiman-like crocodiles and alligators. And then I had to look back on, on something I had said years before to an editor who sent an email out saying, saying, give us your dream story. Well, I remembered a book I'd read years ago that was written by Peter Matheson about George Schaller. It was called The Snow Leopard. So I went on a snow leopard reconnaissance trip and then did a story about the world's, to me, most elusive cat. The first thing we did was go on a reconnaissance trip. I love jungles. I don't really love walking in ice cold water. But going on this reconnaissance trip was incredibly important to me and part of the adventure that we have as National Geographic photographers because I met the man that would eventually make this story successful. I was able to make it successful by figuring out how I could get photographs of this cat. And we were working in far northern India. And I'll let this tell you a little bit more about what happened. the hardest story I've ever done physically because of the altitude and the steepness of the mountains. Visually, it looks like you're on the moon. The cat's very shy and elusive. They can see for very long distances. We are constantly scanning with binoculars to try to see them 
and I would be of the opinion that they're looking to see us. I myself brought 33 bags with me of equipment, sleeping bags, warm clothes. I mean, you think of what you need. So, you know, we flew from Delhi and then Delhi up to Leh, the capital of Ladakh. This is where we're gonna start our uh, snow leopard expedition. We'll be here a few days to acclimate to the altitudes at 12,000 feet. And then got the bags into where the road ends by uh, truck and Jeep. And then we had to load everything on horseback and walk in. We took in 14 remote cameras and a whole camp. Tents, sleeping bags, cots, pads. We bought food from the US and then we bought some in India. At night it was 30 below zero and I've spent my whole career working in jungles. So this was a real switch for me. We looked for locations with the help of the local people that worked with the Snow Leopard NGOs. They had already ID'd locations where the cat comes to mark. This is a new uh, track for snow leopards. It looks, you know, the, this is female one. This is uh, last uh, two days, you know, very fresh step and tracks. You can see someone, you know, uh, uh, spraying here. With this knowledge, we were able to find locations to set up cameras where we knew that cats would come to visit. Once we knew we were having success in like a specific trail, then I would, I quote, mine that trail with remote cameras. Okay, let's put the caps on, get the rope up, we're done. So, um, yeah, I had actually 39 bags because my assistant had six. And uh, so this was a very exciting expedition, I guess we could say. Uh, to be able to work in the frozen north, far northern part of India, where I knew that we could get uh, images of snow leopards. And one of the things I wanted to cover, right when I got there, they, I asked the local people, you know, how they felt about snow leopards, because I know they kill some of their livestock. And they said, we don't kill um, snow leopards anymore because the Dalai Lama told us not to. And the Dalai Lama was actually interviewed for the story because this is a very positive bent on religion and conservation. It's a great story, and that's what, with conservation, we need to talk about great stories and the local people that have problems with predators. Because when a predator comes in and eats something, it's like taking money out of their pocket. And it's the job of the scientists and local NGOs to help them figure it out. Here's a man that I work with now, Dr. Tom McCarthy. He was in Chitral, Pakistan, where I went. Um, and if you ever saw the Planet Earth series of the snow leopard coming down, this was right in this area. And working with these local NGOs to try to do something positive for conservation, that positive thing is, 
if we help them vaccinate the, their livestock, about 25% of all livestock every year is lost to disease. You come in, that's like putting 25% putting money back in some guy's pocket by asking them not to kill snow leopards, and that's a positive thing for conservation. Very important. But my goal was try to get pictures of snow leopards, and as I said in the video, I looked at marking locations. Locations where a male or female is coming to mark to say a male, this is my territory, or for a male and female, talking to each other. It's a form of communication. And I got some of the most incredible pictures using these camera traps. Uh, the snow leopard lives and hunts in the rocky areas because it couldn't, it, it can't, uh, in the flats, actually make it to kill one of these uh, blue sheep, which is their main form of food. And I put up these camera traps, and it has an infrared beam. And I, I, I frame my photograph in the landscape, and I want the nose of the animal to break the beam in my composition. So the first frame is mine. And in Snow Leopards, the first frame's about all I got. Most cameras, I got one frame in six months. Look at this series. A snow leopard marking and then going back up to be sure that it smells like him. Looking up at the light that didn't work the first time he walked by. <laughs> and it's the last time he ever walked by this camera. This is a young blue sheep, which is what they eat. And this picture became very famous as a screensaver for Apple. <laughs> uh, this has the honor of being the first uh, camera trap picture or first photograph I ever looked at and burst out crying. Because I liked it, not because I was sad. <laughs> and, and here, I try to light some of these uh, um, camera trap locations like a diorama if you went to the Museum of Natural History. Because if you think about a problem, and that's our job as National Geographic photographers, to take a problem and find a solution. And the only thing I could think of was like a diorama because you're taking a natural area and lighting it. That was the opener of the story. I had no idea I was going to get the tail end of this, and when I set it up, it was all in snow, and this ran. And then this image was never published, but I won BBC Wildlife Photographer of the Year from this image, and it really helped get the, the, um, the plight of snow leopards out to the general public. Now, one of the next stories I wanted to do which helps keep my tiger theme going, though I didn't know at the time it was, because my book's got 10 years of working with tigers in it, was to go to Kaziranga National Park, because I keep hearing about the problems of parks. And I found a park in northeastern India that has over 80% of the remaining one-horned rhinos. Highest density of tigers, highest population of Asian elephants and Asian water buffalo. All right, now, if you have all that and the park has a problem, like so many people coming in it and hoof and mouth disease, all the rhinos could be wiped out in six months. Boom. So I said, this is a good idea to do a story on this. This is a camera trap picture. I call it dino rhino. 
because part of it's uh, in um, wet and part of it's not, and it kind of looks like a rhino to me. And tell the story of the guards. I'm going to keep harping on this, that uh, local people and guards never get covered in our stories. You walk by them, but we rely on them to help us, give us information. We got charged by rhinos all the time. And the other reason you should respect guards is they have guns and they protect you. And it was incredibly important for me. I did work on elephant back, and this is what happened one day. Lost the gun, lost the gun. And that's about the most scared I've ever been in my life. But one of the other issues that we need to illustrate here is that if you have the highest population of Asian elephants anywhere left in Asia, and the human population is coming in, what's going to happen when the elephants want to migrate? They can't migrate anymore because there's villages in their way, oil refineries, roads, dams. So we need to illustrate this fact and hopefully get lucky enough to be around when something like this happens because it's uh, very difficult. We have the same problems in Africa. I've never seen a picture of it. We actually had bullets flying over our head. One of them came closer than me and the man right there of them trying to shoot to get the elephants to leave just for the noise, not that they were trying to shoot the elephants. But we need to tell this story because what happens when elephants come into uh, local villages? They're killed. This was killed by a man who made a, a, a bullet soaked in acid. The elephant died of septicemia three days later in this other village. Elephants are sacred in Assam. They're sacred in India. So here they are praying over the elephant. Make friends of the local people and the, and the directors of the parks you're working with, and they will call you when they have successes and failures like the dead elephant he called me up and said you got to get here now we need this picture in national geographic not often do people that want to show the best side this side we caught rhino poachers because rhinos are poached here but tigers are not because it's too difficult to remove a tiger it's easy to shoot a rhino cut off its horn and you're gone in five minutes we need to cover what is on the park's border the tea gardens and the rhinos. I wanted to get a picture of a tiger that I'm going to showing you next, right here. This picture spent six months on the front of the museum, two blocks from the U.S. Capitol. It was 40 feet long. It had a lot of people bring it in to learn more about journalism, which is important. I couldn't get the director to give me permission to do this picture till I showed him the last picture. The reason being is he had never seen what these cameras could do. So after he saw the rhino, he let me do this. And the tiger sat there looking one way, the other, and finally backed off and left. In communication and problem solving I talked about before, I saw a tree shredded like this, and then I saw a tiger do it. And so I was thinking, hey, wouldn't it be great to get a picture, a bird's eye view of this 
by putting the camera at 14 feet looking down on the tiger. So that's exactly what we did. We had a lot of problems with elephants and rhinos messing with their camera. Elephants love anything new they can put their trunk on. And so we had it up for about five months and we got this image, luckily. And this, I talk, if we want to talk about evolution, look at this picture. Why do tigers have stripes? Because they walk through fields of grass that have been, been burnt by lightning and no one can see them. And that's how they feed. So with all my work on tigers, I checked to see, well, I didn't need to check to see because it was my mentor that did the last tiger story in National Geographic in December of 1997. I knew tigers were in trouble. I had been talking to uh, Alan Rabinowitz, my friend, about a new tiger project, a new way to look at conservation set up on a business model with goals and accountability and to set up programs in five to seven different countries to raise tiger numbers by 50% in 10 years. Because there were some great donors that live here in Manhattan that said, if we ran our business like you all run conservation, we'd be out of business in a year. And we don't want tigers to disappear. So I picked three countries to work in, Sumatra, Thailand and India. I picked Sumatra first because I felt on an island with the low numbers of Sumatran tigers that they would be the next subspecies that may go extinct. But because of Tigers Forever, Panthera's project, and getting different NGOs to work together, what I did two and a half years ago and what's going on now is a great change in the numbers of tigers and getting people to work together. This is a picture of one of the success stories. That man on the elephant used to be a tiger poacher. But this is what a lot of Sumatra looks like. It's been cut for palm oil. Large scale agriculture and also small scale by many families that are brought over from the overpopulated island of Java to come to Sumatra, they get five hectares of land and they start trying to go palm oil on their own. But they need to feed their families. Here was a man who had set snares out around his five hectares to try to catch protein for his family to eat. Snares also catch small tigers. That man's snares caught this tiger for four days and this little cub lost its right arm. But the guy took all the snares down and he felt terrible about it. What we need to do is find a way that local people that live with predators can, be, can benefit economically from living with those predators and get a kickback from tourism and things like that. So I wanted to photograph the tiger as he, he got um, operated on. And I love this picture that shows a concern of the guard on the right there as he's just carrying the tiger's tail. I mean, it's wonderful. And the guy in the middle is a vet. He works for Flora, Fauna and Flora in the UK now as a veterinarian. But snares aren't only set up for prey. This is a tiger trap I found in the jungle with three snares, boom, boom, boom until you get the puppy. 
my assistant was like, no, we got to let this puppy out. But we were with people that was their family that were the poachers, and it got to the point where we needed to make it out alive. But the guy we were with was really good. Seven months later, the father and son were arrested for killing 160 tigers, and they won't kill anymore. The positive things are the guards. These guards were all illegal loggers or poachers. They all now love getting a steady paycheck every two weeks for protecting wildlife. I call this image, our tiger's worth more dead than alive. This tiger was in a zoo. We got a text one day that she was killed in her pen where she'd lived for 16 years. I asked this little girl to hold the picture up because she came to see the tiger. But those guards that used to be tiger poachers, I came with them one day and I asked a question when we were in the forest. I said, could you ask this man whether he still believes tigers live here or not? And the guy turned around and walked away. And I said, where's he going? He goes, to answer your question. The answer was yes. And a month later, this was the picture, one of the only images of a Sumatran tiger. There's scientific images from small trail cams. But I got two frames. And I was super duper lucky. I went to Thailand, which is the number one success story in all of Tiger Range outside of India, where an area that was almost devoid of tigers, four hours west of Bangkok on the Burma border, Hoi Kai King Tiger Reserve. The Thai Tiger team has worked there since the late 80s. They've been camera trapping all around it, and they know how many tigers they have, and they're working very hard with their Smart Patrol Ranger program to help to be sure that tigers have a future. So I went out with the tiger team. They're doing the only collared tiger work outside of Siberia, and at the time, they weren't even doing it in Siberia. And what they do is set up prey animals like a cow. The tiger comes in, they snare it, this is the first female tiger program ever done anywhere in the world. And it's with Soxit and Achara, his wife, up in the upper left there. First story ever. You see Soxit's ear on the tiger's belly? That's because he's listening to the heartbeat of the cub because she's pregnant. Wonderful story. There will be a future for tigers. And look at this little cub that they had captured one night. It was about 90 pounds, but 90 pounds of ferocious tiger. <laughs> There's another great story that has a sad angle on it. Uh, in 60 Minutes, they ran a story on a chemical carboferran. And one of the companies that made it the next morning called Panthera and said, we don't want our chemical to be used to poison animals, predators, lions in Africa or anywhere else. They are now involved hand in hand to save big cats around the world and put another product in the place of what is odorless and tasteless. In Thailand, I knew it right away when I saw a picture a ranger had taken all this purple pile laying next to a dead tiger. Poachers came in, shot a prey animal, poisoned it. Tiger came in, they lost their main study animal, a female and two cubs. 
but the guy is now in jail. And luckily we caught him because he was dumb enough to take pictures on his cell phone of all 10 tigers. And he had it with him. But the smart patrol rangers are now being used all over Asia. They had just been used in Hoi Kha King when I started the story. Now they're being used everywhere. They are the future. You stop poaching a prey animals first, and then you will protect the protected area against poachers that will kill tigers also, and every other animal. We all know about the elephant poaching that's going on. Rhinos, they're losing 600 rhinos in South Africa alone every year. We need to do something about the market. But at least if we can protect the areas that we know have good populations now, we will have a future for all these animals that we love. Smart Patrol Rangers are, are they're trained by Thai military and police. And in the end, I got one of the only pictures. I had, couldn't find any pictures in the Indo-Chinese tigers, and that was my goal, to get a camera trap picture of an Indo-Chinese tiger. This is a spray tree, a marking tree, just like the snow leopards. But to do tigers, you have to go to India, because I can't set camera traps up anywhere, any, you know, all the time. For one reason, it would drive me absolutely crazy. I'm out shooting the story, but I actually need to see my subject sometimes also. In India, tigers are still difficult to photograph, and they're also dangerous, as this guy shows you. He was sleeping two seconds before this picture, and he shot up like a cannonball at me. My heart was in my throat after that one. But sometimes I'm on an elephant, sometimes I'm in a jeep. And India has tigers from the north to the central hot plains to the south in the western Ghats, which is another success story, to the Sunderbunds, which is the world's largest wetland, where I was lucky enough in two days, one of those days I spent two and a half hours watching a tiger. Incredible. But I also set up my camera traps and I tried to find locations that were a bit unusual, like shooting above, looking down on a river canyon. And the first thing I did when I came in was go to the guard, show him some of my pictures from Kaziranga, the tiger in the grass, and said, if you were going to put one of these camera traps up, where would you put it? Everybody's eyes lit up, and they said, here. And I had the camera traps up for about six weeks until unfortunately I was forced to take them down. Here's some of the pictures that they took. It's like a time lapse of tigers going to a water hole. Checking it out. Right there, they were getting ready to leave the park. And then they went, oh, let's take a drink first. Here's their father in the middle of the night coming in. Doing the same, same thing, taking a drink. This is when the weather got hotter and the algae came on the pond at dawn, and every morning, 
the Mahouts, the park rangers, will look for the elephant tracks to find out where they went. Because the Mahouts constantly need to know where there are because in central India and the tiger reserves, it's partially about tiger management because of the fact that you have villages on the border of these parks and you don't want there to be too much human-tiger conflict. One of the best things, one of the most positive things going on in India now is taking all the buffer zones around parks and buying the people out, giving them a decent amount of money so they can actually move from tiger areas, go buy land somewhere else. I met a family once and I asked them how they felt about it. The mother pipes up and she goes, we can walk at night from one house to another and I don't need to worry about my children. We don't lose our livestock. They were overjoyed and it's a great idea. How do you find tigers? You listen to the spotted deer because they start chirping when the tiger is coming after them. One thing you do in tiger photography is you photograph the three things that tigers do all day long. Eat, sleep, and hopefully play in front of your camera. But photographing tigers, like I said, is difficult, and our job is to try to find a different way to do it. So one of the ways I wanted to do it was I'd seen this contraption in the basement of National Geographic that was made years ago for TV but never used. And it was a remote control car. And I said, could we put a camera on that and I could see whether I could use it for tigers? Well, this is what happened. I mean, of course he just wanted to play with it. My biggest concern was if, it, if she licked the lens because I couldn't go get it and it may not make it back to me. Don't let her lick it. There was a couple nice images of her when she was moving close to the camera because the camera's actually below her. So you're actually looking up. You never get to look up at a tiger unless you're looking up while it's killing you. <laughs> yeah, that was the line I had to come up with TV. That's the only way you'd be looking up at a tiger, if you were in its mouth. But you know, one of the, one of the things I need to illustrate on stories is, okay, you know, I got to see the elephants being chased by people in Kaziranga, but it's very difficult to be there during tiger, human-tiger conflict. So I thought one thing I can do is get tigers leaving the park. There's only a small area that's fenced because the rest of it's open. But the area that's fenced had been knocked down by the Mahouts because they couldn't keep the tigers out of the villages no matter what they did. Now the villages have been moved. But at the time I wanted to get a picture of tigers moving out of the park, but I'd never in a million years thought I could get a picture of four tigers moving out of the park. But I had to watch it because the tiger in the back of those uh, water hole pictures, I ended up calling him Smasher because his job was always to smash my cameras till he quit hearing the click or there was no more flash going off. 
and he actually pulled the cord out of this one too. And I only got one frame, but it's pretty good. This is human-animal conflict. This is what happens. It's something we don't like looking at, but it was published in the magazine. We need to actually organize and help out the government of India and show our support for moving these villages because that's how it's going to save the people. The unfortunate thing about that is a female was in the village. Two men on elephants were moving that tiger out of the village. And the tiger that killed that man, it was the brother of the men that were on the elephant. Getting tiger poachers takes a long, long time. It took me three months till I got a text from a friend, Belinda Ryder, one runs the Wildlife Protection Society in India, saying, Steve, you can get this picture tomorrow if you get in your car and drive 12 hours. Well, I don't drive in India because it's the wrong side of the road or the right side of the road, as they say. But we got down and got the picture. First week I was in India, I was going to Bandavgar National Park for one reason. Because they had tigers with small cubs. You haven't seen any tigers with small cubs, have you, so far? Because the week I was there... This man, a tiger killed his buffalo. A bu buffalo is worth more money than anything else because the milk has so much cream in it. He poisoned the tiger that had the two cubs. The other one was killed as roadkill. But tigers do have a future. They breed and can, each female can have 15 tigers in a lifetime. So I know and do believe with all the work that's going on with Tigers Forever and getting NGOs to work together that Tigers do have a future. But we have to work really hard to ensure that. Here's a female. I was allowed to go back on my last trip. She's actually nursing a cub right now. I'm on the back of an elephant, but I can't get any higher to get the picture I need. I spent 21 days sitting on top of an elephant hoping to get something other than the female lying there and her cubs in a cave. I did. I got the cover of my book, five frames I shot, one of them was in focus, and there it is. On the 24th day of being there, my wife goes, how do you do this? That would drive me crazy. Well, Darla drove me crazy, too. I called, I called home twice a day, so she knew it was driving me crazy. And thank you all for coming. Save the tiger. And all big cats. If you have any questions, we'll take a couple. Go ahead and raise your hand. We'll come on over I love you. questions. I'm always amazed at the, the deep color and saturation of the pictures that I see in National Geographic. How do you do that? I mean, is that... Well, you know, um, one of the things that we used to do as film photographers was use Velvia. So in printing and engraving, if we used to use Velvia and if we liked the, the saturation of the blues and the greens, that that's what we asked printing and engraving to do. But things are looked at very closely because we don't do very much imaging in aperture because that's what I use, because <laughs> I love it. But um, 
we can't do very much just because it's certain uh, photojournalistic ethics. But some of us love that color palette, and I'm one of them. Thanks. Hi. This might seem like a silly question, but why aren't the animals freaked out by the flash? I would think they would run away. Lightning. I spend so much time all by myself in the middle of nowhere. I've asked myself that same question. And the only answer is lightning. It's got to be. Because nothing happens to them. Uh... The flash goes off, and nothing happens to you in lightning unless the storm's right above you. So I think that's a good answer, because um, that's the only one I can think of. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm a student at Columbia Journalism School, and so I'm a little interested in um, how your photo essays work with the pieces that are being written about them, right? Um, and just the collaboration question. process there. Sometimes they work very well, and sometimes uh, on an elusive animal, I spend so much time in the field that the writer doesn't have that same amount of time. We actually do travel together uh, in certain parts of the story, but I have to spend so much more time to get the images. But to me, it's vitally important. I like working with field biologists because, like I said, I have no training in science at all. The only thing I don't want to do is be a photographer. Uh, but working with scientists is incredibly important. It's great when they are the writer. But a collaborative effort from the very beginning when you're doing research to me is vitally important. Hi. Um, I was really uh, proud to see the logo of my current employer, the Wildlife Conservation Society, alongside Panthera. And I know you were <laughs> uh, really uh, preaching the, the importance of collaborative work yes. with NGOs, but also the collaborative work with local peoples. Yeah. And I was just wondering how you uh, see the future of media like this working with the local people. How do, you, how do you expect to connect to people using medium like this? I think what we need to do is have more of an online presence. And the only way I could think of it, and we've discussed this quite often, is to use schools and local media in host countries. Because schools have opportunities to have internet, universities, local media where they need internet, even if it's to bring photographs in or send video streaming out to places. And we have to hand in hand work with local medias and universities um, I think, number one, to help educate people that want to do biological work in their own country, but also to get this out there and bring small projectors into villages and stuff and show them what's going on. Because out of all the time that I will say and have worked with local people, they don't really know the story of what's going on because they're on the farms, they may travel into the forest, but don't have the opportunity to... Uh, stay in that area as much or learn as much about problems in their own countries, you know? That's the way I look at it because we've, and you, you yourself well know that this is a very important topic. And like I said, I couldn't do, 
I spend a lot more time with local people than I do with scientists because they can't spend that much time in the field. They've got to go back to their universities, their grad projects only have so much money, and their project could run out of funds before I even get done with my story, which has happened numerous times. And I love being able to bring back the knowledge that I get for something paid for by the National Geographic magazine to the scientists I know and tell them about grad students they should hire, projects that are important. Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the role of the photographer has evolved into conservationist, um, particularly now where it's such an important voice uh, with, with what's going on all around the world with endangered species and threatened species. Um, it, it, it's so powerful. Uh, it's such a powerful tool compared to just the written article. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution as a photographer? Well, let's put it this way. When I first started out, well, I was a photojournalist, number one, and I'm still a photojournalist, but I cover the natural world. But things like this didn't exist uh, in the same way. I mean, now we have the International League of Conservation Photographers, which I, I'm a member of. Uh, I, the way I look at it is we spend all this time on stories, and it's our duty. We're giving these animals a voice. We're giving the local people a voice. And it can't end on the pages of National Geographic in my situation. It has to go on. With all my colleagues doing books, doing multimedia projects, now doing films, we have to be out there speaking. Um, and the National Geographic live lecture program is really popular. but. I'd love to come to universities. I'll talk anywhere. I love what I do. This is the only thing I've ever wanted to do, and it's our job to get out there, get on the media when we can to talk about this. But I'll tell you, it's awfully difficult to get on local TV or, you know, I mean, the LA Times ran that picture because it was from the LA Times two weeks ago. So we got there and got to talk about the problems. But to me, it is our obligation. It is our responsibility as photographers and filmmakers to carry that story further than the end of that film or the end of that story. 100%. Because it makes us feel like we're actually doing something else with our lives and accomplishing something. I want to save tigers. My picture's from the beginning. The only reason I'm at Panthera is because I gave pictures to scientists that I've worked with and they've used them for lectures and fundraising and I've never asked for anything. They help me, this is our job, is to help save the world and I really do believe that. And we can, we can. All right, well that's gonna do it for tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking tonight's guest one more time, Steve Winter. Thank you.